Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. About uh, 22, 23 years ago, Cheryl and I had, um, we had our first child. And uh, so, yeah, I was, uh, we got married at 10 or 12 years old. Um, um, but uh, so, yeah, we had our, we had our first child. And I, I think Cheryl had kind of gotten used to the whole idea, right? So for nine months, she's either feeling sick, being reminded of the baby, or she's feeling uh, Joel kick, or, you know, her back aches, and she can't, like, roll over on one side or the other. And so I think she was starting to kind of get... Uh, get this idea in her that like soon and very soon we were going to see the baby and it was going to be this incredible moment. She was very, very excited. Um, and she's also, you know, very much, you know, kind of a natural uh, and, and I'm not. And so, you know, this idea for me, it was like, it, it just hadn't, it hadn't really like sunk in that, that, there was going to be another human being living in our lives and uh, what that was going to be like to have a baby kind of dropped on our, you know, on our heads. And so not really being natural uh, with it, like I, I don't know that I, I was really even comfortable in knowing how to hold babies of that, you know, this size at the time. They just seemed like you could break them so easy, like they were just so tiny. And, and, uh, and, and so, and I certainly wasn't ready for, for how much noise they make. And, and how unbelievably demanding uh, that they can be. Like I just, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't equipped. I wasn't like, uh, like ready. And so, uh, shows up. It's fine. Cool. We're in the hospital, loaded with experts, uh, all sorts of trained and professional people all around. It's great. A few days after we we get them home. That's where things started taking a turn for me. Because, of course, you know, in those first couple days, you're just all bleary-eyed. And, and you really don't actually even know what's going on. And you can't really even remember, like, moment to moment or days and nights. They all sort of blur uh, in, into one. It was, it was around, like, day three or four where I think it started kind of sinking in for me. I was on the midnight shift. Cheryl was trying to get some much-needed sleep. And uh, I was holding what was then an an absolutely inconsolable Joel, just fussy and crying, and I'm fatigued beyond fatigue, and I, I can barely keep my eyes open, but you can't stop holding them and rocking them and moving, and, and you know, I, I knew that Cheryl would be able to have them calm down and stop crying, and I just did not have any of those skills um, or knowledge or whatever it was, and so, I, you know, your mind starts to go in these sort of crazy places in moments like that, and I started to, to realize it was really then, like three days in, that I realized, like, no one was coming. <laughs> like, they're, like, you know, if you're in a tough spot, you're like, you know, at any moment, the, someone's going to walk through the door who knows what they're doing, and they're going to, like, you know, rescue the situation. Like, if you're watching a kid, or you're, you know, you're like, somebody always comes and takes them. And, you know, you send them back with the responsible adults. And so here we are, and I'm like, no one's coming. Like, it's, it's me and Cheryl, and that's the whole plan. Like, who thought this was a good idea? Right? I mean, I started really thinking about it. I was like, it felt, it felt a little bit 
like, like all these responsible doctors and nurses and people that had training and skills and all of that, they had handed a baby to a guy that knew nothing. It felt like medical malpractice. Like, how could you do that? At least it was like some sort of like very sick, like social experiment. And so like, here I am, I'm all foggy in the brain. I'm thinking about it and it dawns on me. I'm like, you know, I don't actually have any skills or training in this. Where do we do this in life? If you wanted to take a CPR class, and, you know, you want to learn CPR and first aid, it's like a four or five hour class. You know, I remember Cheryl and I, we wanted to like do some ballroom dancing classes. We went with Conrad and Kelly years and years and years ago. We, we want to learn like the foxtrot and the cha-cha and stuff like that. So like we could go to like weddings and not look like, anyway, so different story. But we, we took a class at, all together at like a community college. It was like two hours a week for like four months to learn to cha-cha. What, how in the, I have my hunting license, 14 hours. That's what it takes. 14 hours. You know how much, you know how many training you have to have before they give you a child, before they let you take one home? Zero. Zilch. Even pastors require like premarital counseling before they do weddings usually. Kids, nothing. Here you go. Good luck. What in the world is going on? How is that? How does this make any sense? Who thinks that handing completely untrained people, this incredibly serious responsibility. Who thought that this was a good idea? So you imagine now, right? It's Christmas time. And so you always think back to the, you know, the, 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 the days when Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the stories we read in the Bible about all of this. And so how is it that Mary felt when she was facing this very first Christmas and she finds out that little eight pound, six ounce, little baby Jesus was going to now be hers and hers alone. She was going to be responsible. She was going to be carrying this child. God tells her that she is going to be giving birth to the long awaited Messiah, the gift of gifts to the whole of the world. And Mary was going to be responsible for, oh yeah, by the way, Mary, because it's not going to be hard enough. Remember, she's probably a kid at the time. She's probably 16, 17 years old when she hears this incredible news gift that uh, she was going to be blessed with. And, and, and now imagine that she, then she's like, wow, this is unbelievable. This is incredible. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, it's going to be a virgin birth. So we're going to go after like your reputation and, you know, your relationship with Joseph is going to go through a whole lot of trouble. And, but you know, the whole society is going to sort of kind of question whether or not, but you'll, you'll get through it. Like, how is this a good plan? I look at these days and I think to myself, imagine the responsibility that they must have felt and the lack of preparedness. Some of you guys know uh, Michael Jr. He's a comedian. And he talks about the day that Mary and Joseph lost Jesus uh, at the temple. Some of you will remember this story. Let's see what Michael Jr. says. also found out when Jesus was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. They lost Jesus. And you know, the first thing they had to do was pray. I wonder what that prayer must have sounded like. Joseph probably did the prayer. He was like, oh, God. <laughs> Dear God, um, oh, forgiving God. Um, you remember that Messiah you gave us? 
got another one somewhere, man? We don't. That was the only we got in some? Okay, we're going to find them. We're going to find them. <laughs> we're going to find them. Don't you worry. We're going to absolutely find them. So God entrusts his son, the Messiah, to young Mary. And with that, he declared and he began one of the most startling patterns that we could possibly have imagined to be putting this kind of serious responsibility into the hands of women and men that do not necessarily seem up for the task. And God continues to this day, this seemingly reckless plan with you. The Christmas story, as we really celebrate it, started actually 700 years before the birth of Christ. This is where it really started to take shape. In some ways, the promises had always been there. But around 700 years before that, there was a prophet, Isaiah. And it's a very familiar verse around Christmas time. He said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This idea was vital in the messianic promise because we all understand that the, that the nations of this world, they war, they fight. There's all sorts of, uh, of heartache and, and struggle and drama. And there's a lack of justice and righteousness in the world. And so when the scriptures talk about the government being on his shoulders, it's talking about the right and good and holy and pure administration of all things re regarding human thriving. And imagine a world where the whole of the government was based on the wisdom and the power of a good and a compassionate God. That's the idea here. The whole government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And these ideas, these four concepts together, really kind of paint the picture of his wisdom and his power. That he is a wise God. He's a supernatural and wise counselor. He sees things and understands things the way that the rest of the world would not. The way that mere humans like us often get wrong nowadays. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father. This promise here of Father is so neat because he's not just the mighty God. He's just not, he's not just powerful. He's also the patriarch of the tribe, right? And so if you think about like a village and a tribe and you have the patriarch who oversees, it's his responsibility to care for and protect the whole of his village, the whole of his tribe. And so this is the everlasting father kind of image. And of course, the Prince of Peace and the peace that he promises, the shalom, the wholeness of life, the fullness. That, like this is the promise time and again that God lays out for us. That is who is going to come. One of the greatest uh, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So there isn't going to be this give and take this, you know, it's not going to be the kind of a government where, you know, every four years we turn the thing upside down and we cancel everything the guy did before. And then we, we do it again in four years or eight years. And then we do it again. And then we get half the people upset and angry and all that. And the other half, this is like this back and forth, this sort of whiplash emotionally that we, and intellectually that we all go through. And he's saying, no, 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 this is going to be justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a promise that God himself is going to be securing this incredible gift for the whole of the world. He is going, God himself 
is going to accomplish this. He, in Christmas, is bringing us the long-awaited Messiah, the promised king, and the kingdom that he will rule and reign in that will bring peace and harmony and hope and healing to the whole of the planet. That's a crazy, awesome gift. And anticipation had been building for hundreds of years. And it really got underway again with the prophets because it was, it was, it was sort of this, this punctuated thing. It was uh, throughout time. It was just dropped in to the storyline time and again, this idea of this promise. Even, even in this passage, if you go up just a couple of verses, it says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And so the beginning of it is just starting. It isn't here yet in all of its fullness, but it has begun. The light is beginning to shine. We talk about a beacon, right? And, and why we picked the name uh, now 16 years ago is because this idea of shining in a dark land, it's beginning to shine. There is, there is light in a dark land. And that is an incredible gift that those living in darkness they, they need, they need this light. And so you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Now listen, this is Christmas language, right? They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. I love this, this the, the two images they give here because the harvest, right? You, you work real hard all year long. You dig up your, your fields, you plow them, and you drop your seeds in, and you cover them up, and then you're going to, you know, you're hoping for the rains to come, and then you, you tend to your fields, and so you you know you make sure you protect your crops, and you pull out any weeds and pests and things like that, and you're doing everything you can, but really what you're doing is you're waiting. You're waiting, and all through the harvest, all before the harvest season, the growing season, you're waiting. It's anticipation, and he's saying that one day, all of the harvest is going to come. You know the way the harvest works? It all kind of hits in the same couple of weeks, and so everybody runs out there, and you get your, you know, your whole tribe, your village, they all run out there, and they all try to like bring in the whole of the harvest, and it's this incredible celebratory, anticipatory time, and God's saying, that's what it's going to be like. When you guys rejoice at the harvest, when you've wondered how you're going to feed your family and how your villages are going to survive through the winter and all of that, that's the experience this is going to be like. It's going to be like the, the, the food and the wine, the, the vats are going to overflow and you're going to be looking and rejoicing and having the harvest parties and all of that. That is what this is going to be like. Or he uses another metaphor. It's as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And so, right, the picture here is you go to war, you chase your enemy out of their villages, and they run up and they hide in the hills, and then you now have inherited, you have taken over, you now have control over everything that they had. So their cities that they built are now your cities. The animals they left behind are now your animals. All the stuff they, they left in their, their homes. Now you're thinking, this does not sound like a Christmas story. This sounds like warfare. This is bloody Christmas. And so, and, and in a sense, it's true. And, and we kind of live removed from these things. And we don't like, you know, living in these kind of metaphors. But it's super important, especially when you see where the prophet was going. He said, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke. Now, quick little story, side story on this. Midian's armies had one time covered the whole of the landscape of, of Israel. They were one of the largest armies that had ever been assembled, and they were ready to destroy the nation of Israel. They were going to come through the land, and they were going to plunder, and they were going to pillage, and they were going to kill, and they were going to destroy God's people. It was an enemy unlike any they had faced. They were terrified, and most all of the Israelites were now in hiding and awaiting this onslaught. And God calls a guy, Gideon, and he tells Gideon, he's like, hey, mighty warrior, you're going to come and fight. And Gideon's like, what? 
Like, have you seen who's out there? Have you seen that enemy? Have you seen how many there are? And he was like, no, 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 not doing that, not going for it. It's not going to be me. He's like, no, no, yeah, you're going to go. And he's like, I don't know that we have enough people to even muster an army a tenth of the size. And God's like, don't worry about it. You're not taking the whole army. What? (laughs) You're taking a few hundred guys, 300 actually, to fight the Midianites. And he's like, what? How in the world is this even? And God, he uses the weakness of Gideon and the fewness of soldiers to rout the whole of the army. To send them in, he sends them into a panic. They turn on each other. They flee the land and the Israelites, their yoke of slavery and oppression is broken. And in that moment, God uses someone who's clearly not up for the task to do something impossible. But he uses a few scared and weak folks to break the rod of their oppressors. They left their camps, Midian moved in, took all that was left over by the fleeing army. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for Burning. This is one of my favorite parts of this whole, whole passage. It'll be fuel for the fire. So every, everything that you had used for your warfare, all of that heartache, all of that misery, all of the suffering, all the conflict that exists between our nations now and between our families and between our, 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 our political warring parties and all of this bloodshed, all of this heartache, we're going to roll all that up and we're going to throw it in the fire. We're going to use it for something actually good. We're going to use it for fuel, right? The, the promise of the weapons, right? The built, he's going to beat their swords into plowshares, right? That's the promise that you, right now you have weapons, right now you have swords, right? Now that's, that's the rule of the world. That's how this thing works. But the, but the empire that is coming, the world that is coming, the one that the Messiah is going to usher in, you're going to get rid of all your swords and you're going to use them to feed the world. You're going to make plows out of them and you're going to reap this great harvest. It'll be used for fuel, because you won't need them anymore. These gifts that Jesus gives to us, that the Messiah promises to us, it's one of the great, great promises of the whole of the scriptures and why at Christmas time we love gifts. Right? God gives us these gifts. We love gifts. We ought to love gifts. Getting gifts is amazing. And God says, listen, this is me. I give gifts all the time. I'm giving you all of these amazing gifts. And he doesn't, he's not embarrassed by that. He doesn't steer away from it. He doesn't hide this reality. He's like, I'm pouring out gift upon gift upon blessing all the time. And there are even greater gifts to come. But of course, that's not the whole of the story when it relates to gifts and to the Christmas story. Because we also have the story of the Magi. The Magi brought gifts to Jesus. So wait. So the Magi actually brought gifts to God. First, God was saying, I'm going to give you all these gifts. It's going to be like harvest and plunder and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to pour out all of this on you. But then the storyline gets shifted, and suddenly the Magi are bringing gifts to the baby. And they're valuable, and they're expensive gifts, right? It's gold, it's frankincense, myrrh. Scholars say that the frankincense and the myrrh might have been more valuable than the gold. It was such a rare commodity at the day and so highly prized that this was, a, this was an extravagant gift. 
And, and history has done, legend has done a whole lot of with like what happened to these gifts? Where'd they go? What were they used for? And there's all sorts of these ideas as to what, you know, happened and what was the myrrh and where the frankincense and the burial and all of this. And so you have to, like, what happened? The Bible doesn't tell us what happened. So you have to speculate what happened to the gifts. It's not always a great idea to speculate, but it's sometimes fun. I like to say, I like to think that Joseph and Mary cashed it all in. That's what I think they did. I think they cashed in all the gifts. Because we know they were a poor family. We know that because when they went to the temple, they offered the gift that only a poor family was allowed to offer, a couple of birds. They couldn't even afford a, a lamb as the sacrifice. They could only afford. So they were a poor family living in an occupied state. And Herod took an interest in their child. And Herod decides that the child needed to die. And Herod committed an atrocity in order to guarantee that the child would be killed, but he wasn't killed. And his family fled to Egypt. How did they do it? How did they live for years as refugees from one of the most powerful tyrants in their region at the time? I think it was the money from the Magi. I think they cashed it in and they got the animals they needed to travel. And I think he used it to rent the space to set up his, his new carpentry shop when he got down to Egypt. And I think it's how he put food on the table while they were living as refugees for those years that they were outside of the nation of Israel. It was years before they could return. And it seems to me as if God had provided the means by which they would be able to be safe and looked after in their time of trauma. Of course, we don't know this. But for us, what we do know is that Jesus came as a child. He came needy, he came dependent, and he remained so throughout his earthly life. This is one of the most surprising and the craziest realities of the incarnation. The incarnation is what we've been talking about during this whole season. It's the idea that God became flesh so that he could dwell among us. And that's who Jesus was, God in flesh, so he could dwell among us. That's the incarnation. And when you look at the prophecy again, you, it starts in such a startling way. For, for to us, a child is born. That's not how I would have started the saving of the world story. I would have started with full-grown Jesus showing up who didn't need to eat, didn't need to drink, probably didn't need to sleep, and could take care of everything without depending on the likes of us. That's the kind of a hero that I would put in the center of this story. And God's like, no, we're going in a slightly di different direction because we're starting a story and we're continuing a narrative that is going to make a whole lot of folks a whole lot of uncomfortable. A child is born. And it doesn't stop there. There's one cool little verse that's in uh, Luke. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. That's what we expect. Jesus is on the scene, the rabbi. His disciples are following him. Everything is set. This is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. This was Jesus going from town to town, village to village, synagogue to synagogue, and he was saying, hey guys, guess what? Isaiah's prophecy, that's me. Messiah, coming kingdom, it's happening. Right now, in your day, 
the prophecies of Isaiah are being fulfilled. This is literally what he went about teaching. It was the teaching of the kingdom of God, the good news that it was now starting, that all of these gifts were about to be unwrapped for humanity. So he goes on the scene. He starts doing this. This is incredible. The 12 were with him, as you would expect. He's gathered up a band of people. This is great. They're all going to do this thing together. This is, this is exactly what you would expect. And then the text takes a little bit of a shift. It says, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. Why is that so surprising? Because women weren't disciples in that day. They weren't allowed to follow a rabbi. They weren't around allowed. To, they were at night. A woman is supposed to be with her dad if she is not married or in her husband's house if she is. And here we have this band of women who are followers of Jesus, disciples. This was startling in the ancient Near East. No doubt it's why Luke included it. And he included dozens of stories just like this, examples of this, to say, no, 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 this Jesus community is different from any other community. This Jesus movement is different than any movement you have ever imagined possible. We're going we're gonna to overturn the old way of doing things with this new Jesus community. And so already he's starting to move in a direction. So now you get the whole picture, right? You get Jesus teaching the people about the kingdom of God. So the guys are doing all of this amazing stuff. And it's a pretty crazy story if you want to read the gospels. They're healing people. They're helping the poor. They're feeding the hungry. And he's using the disciples to go out there and kind of do all this. They're showing the power and the love of God in all of these miraculous and even mundane ways. And it is a spectacular story. How are they doing it? How do you fund a three-year missionary endeavor with such a large group of people? How do you feed them? How do you house them? How in the world are they funding this new Jesus movement? Luke goes on to tell us. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Wait, so everything that Jesus and the disciples were accomplishing was being underwritten by the women who were traveling with them? Well, that's what Luke told us. A man, by the way. Pretty crazy. This would have been startling. This would have actually been something that no one would have even wanted to admit. That it, if it was happening, they'd be like, I don't know, we don't need, let's keep that on the down low. Let's just keep that on the down low. That Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the entrance of the kingdom of God into humanity's realm was being underwritten by a handful of women. This is the kind of a thing we see over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. In the incarnation, Jesus became dependent on other people. And this blows our minds. He was a baby. He nursed at Mary's breast and he depended on Joseph to put food on the table when he was a small boy. You know, you got to start to picture it. Like what would happen when Jesus was running down the field? He fell and he scraped his knee. Would Mary like come up there and sort of expertly put ointment and a little bandage on it? And then would she give it like, you know, the mother's kiss that would make all things well? <laughs> 
That's the picture that the scriptures want us to see, that for some reason he wants us to understand in a powerful and a very real and tactile way this sort, of, this sort of part of the incarnation, this dependence that Jesus would have on us. You know, I think to myself, did he catch colds? Because like everybody right now has sniffles. And if he did catch a cold, which seems bizarre to me, that he'd be like, <clears throat> like, you know, this is Jesus, Messiah, Savior of the world. Did he catch a cold? And if he did, did he whine just a little too much like most men I know? Like, I don't know if this is heresy or not, but it seems like it, this is kind of this picture. He became dependent on us. Doing Christmas means that we get to participate in the incarnation and we get to support the work that Jesus is doing here and now. Like Gideon and his tiny little band of men, like Mary, like the band of women that continued to support, like Joseph. You know, Jesus, he got hungry and tired and he had no doubt sleepless nights and he used fishermen to help him teach the crowds and stand in their boats and another to pick up a fish out of the, out of the sea in, in order to pay a tax with a coin in his mouth. He's got just all of these stories of how he was depending on people all around him all the time and he was asking his followers to help him do all of this incredible work. We see moments of weakness in him that is so surprising to us, like how he longed for the support of his friends in the garden, how he, he wanted them to be with him and to strengthen him in these times. And you think, this, is, this was God's plan. In his wisdom, God decided that this was the best way to bring about his forever kingdom. And he remains dependent on us today. And when I think about that, I go, oh, wait, he remains dependent on us today? I think there would be a lot of this emojis in the Bible if it were being written today. This is an incredible mystery. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to try to unpack how the sovereignty of God and the dependence of God work themselves out. It's a mystery. Now, actually, I do want to work it out. I've tried to work it out. I've thought about it a lot, and I haven't been able to work it out. I just don't understand it. And so I, at some point, I come with humble faith to the text, and I try to understand what God is trying to teach us through it, though I don't understand why he would do these things and function in this way and act like this and entrust things to us where we clearly shouldn't be trusted with them. And so it is a great mystery that the incarnation proved to us just how serious God was in joining forces with his church in order to accomplish his plans for the whole of humanity and our planet. You know, our first, each week of this series, we've been doing a generosity exercise. And so uh, this is kind of our doing Christmas application stuff. And it's given us a taste of what it means to, uh, of how God will join forces with us. And so we getting, we're getting some of these stories back, and it's really, really cool. We had one person who said, you know, they went by the Salvation Army thing. They understood that God was telling them to do it, and they dropped their money in the Salvation Army bucket outside a grocery store. Another family, they pooled uh, the money that they had been given. This is back from, like, two weeks ago when we gave folks, we gave you guys uh, uh, thousands of dollars for, like, different uh, denominations, kind of just randomly assigned out to you guys and asked you to go do something with it. One family, they pooled those envelopes that they got and they brought some scarves and hats and gloves for uh, some homeless folks and uh, this is right before winter so I thought that was so beautiful. Somebody bought their neighbor who lives alone a couple of poinsettias and brought him over to the house and said you know Merry Christmas and sat and talked with 
someone that they had not been able to see for a while who is far from Jesus. One of the stories that came in, it just, it, I, was, I was wrecked. Uh, they used the money to start a relationship with a homeless guy that they had passed. And, uh, and uh, it took a little bit. It was a little rocky start for a variety of reasons. And then they started uh, talking. And the guy started opening up. And he says, you know, he's, he's made some really bad mistakes over the course of his life. And so he, he was in the military. He was in the Marines. And when he got home, he got addicted to drugs. And because of that, he lost his wife and his two daughters who don't want to see him or have anything to do with him anymore. So now he, he begs on the street and he lives in a park. And one of our brothers here at Beacon took their money to start a conversation, honored and showed respect to this man by hearing his story, offered additional help to meet him where he was at, and dignified him and explained how God loves him. We get to participate with God in doing the work that God wants to accomplish in this world. We, the church, have been honored by God with this great responsibility. He receives our gifts and then he uses them to give great gifts to so many. See, so what the church does, it matters. What you do as the church, it matters. What we do as the body of Christ, it matters, and it matters for eternity. You imagine a parent who needs prayer and encouragement, where are they going to get that? From you. They're going to get it from the church, a family who will need food, warm clothes, a little bit of help with some tough financial things, and we, the church, get to provide that. There are marriages all over the place and even here at Beacon that are struggling through this very difficult time. Who is going to point them to the power of Jesus and offer them practical and gospel-centered ways of getting past their struggles and showing a life that represents Christ and his church well? That's going to be us, the church. We are going to do that. There is a troubled kid and there's going to be a lonely senior. There's a widow who can't get you know, some basic work done on our house. We, the church, get to do this. Every one of us has people that we know, family and friends and neighbors and coworkers and relatives who are far from God. We, the church, get to tell them about the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. He has entrusted this incredible responsibility with us. And when we put our gifts on deposit with Jesus. He turns them into this eternal kingdom for many. You're not going to get a return on investment like that anywhere else in anything that you will give to or you will participate in. So here's your generosity exercises for this week. The first week we did our version of pay it forward and we're still getting those stories. So please be sure to keep uh, doing that. If you still have your envelope, make sure you don't buy Next week, go use it out there. Go do some cool stuff with it. The second week, we asked you to consider supporting under-resourced families in the community with uh, food and gifts, and a whole lot of folks have already taken us up on that as well. Third generosity exercises, those are for today, and these may be far more difficult for you than the two that have come before. The first is the incubator. We are now finishing up our second year 
of our pastoral leadership incubator. We now have a couple of dozen nearly folks who have been trained between one and two years already who have been working on their own soul care, working on what it means to be a shepherd, working on the skills it means to be a leader. These are folks who are saying, I want to have a greater role and a greater impact in God's kingdom here at Beacon and even beyond Beacon. It has been one of the highest joys of my life, and I do not exaggerate, to work with these two cohorts that we have had over the last couple of years. It has been an absolute privilege to get to know them and to spend time with them and to be praying with and for them and to be encouraged by them and to see their growth in Christ and their love for all of you. And there might be some of you today who are saying, you know what, I know, that, I don't know what it is, but I know that God wants me to be pressing deeper into the work of the kingdom. He wants to use my gifts and my abilities, my talents. He wants to, he wants to grow me up so that I can go and do even more in the kingdom and reach my full redemptive potential and we want to be a part of that journey with you. And if you feel any stirring at all, even if you don't really know what it is or, or, or what it might look like or what it's going to play out to, let us journey with you. Go ahead and fill out the application and we will at least have the conversation. Not everybody who applies will get in because it might not be the right fit for you or might not be the right fit at this time. Um, but uh, we would love to start that conversation with you and see if perhaps God is calling you to a sacrifice of your own resources, time, your emotional and your spiritual energy for the good of his church. The second is our Illuminate campaign. This is our end of year giving campaign. And so you can guess why we call it Illuminate, right? We're beacon. We want to burn brighter and we want to shine more brightly. And this is one of the ways that uh, we do this. And we're asking you to consider giving above and beyond your normal tithe and your offerings. And why is that? So the way that we work uh, as a church is we actually have the resources we need to do the ministry that we're currently doing. We don't budget on like some sort of faith thing. I know some of you might be in an environment where like, we have, that's why we don't have to like whip people up and try to like guilt you into anything like that. We, we, don't, we don't have to do any of that kind of stuff because whatever we get in, we spend on the ministries of the church. And that's how we've always budgeted. That's how we will continue to budget. So what does that mean for Illuminate? It means that whatever comes in through our Illuminate campaign, when it goes above and beyond the normal needs of the church, we get to do more ministry. We get to invest that in more people, in more locations. We get to invest that in more ministries here and outside of Beacon. We get to do more ministry, be, be used by God in, in, with an increasing impact. And all of you get to participate in that. You get to be the women who funded the work of the kingdom. You get to be those who came alongside the early church and said, here, take these resources and continue to do the work that God has called you to do. You get to participate in that way because God has given us this incredible responsibility and he has given us this incredible opportunity. And we have opportunities to do incredible work throughout the whole. Now, listen, this is not our, I'm not trying to give you a hard sell, make you feel guilt or anything. Don't at all. God loves a cheerful giver. And if he has put it on your heart, then use this as an opportunity. You know, this is one of those things that if God is, is calling you to it, you will know it. You will feel it. You will sense it. God can communicate uh, in uh, very, very clear ways. And if that is you, um, then this is uh, your moment 
to, to, to lay that down in obedience to Christ. The beauty of this is that through these gifts, the sacrifice of, of our time, of our leadership, of our resources and our money, we get to see lives changed for eternity. That's what Jesus has entrusted to us. We meet physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, and we get to see souls saved. And we get to do this because Jesus has given us this great privilege. So if God's blessed you with abundance or if he's calling you into some sort of deeper type of sacrifice, then we encourage you to let that be your generosity exercise for today. Let's pray. Lord, what we are asking is that you would help us to understand what this means. It is so hard to imagine that you have entrusted to us this incredible gift, this privilege of joining you in this work that you have in some mysterious way, you have made the work of the kingdom dependent upon us. And Father, we do not feel up for the task. We feel like we needed uh, more warning, more training, more pros, more experts to help us along the way. And yet, Father, this is what you decided to do. In your great wisdom, you've chosen the lowly things and the weak things and the thing, those that, that don't have to accomplish all that you've set out before us. You're allowing us, Lord, to give your gifts to humanity that they might be able to unwrap the joy of your kingdom to rejoice in the coming king. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up people's hearts toward that end today, the rest of this season, that we, Lord, together would learn to love to do Christmas. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.